0: Welcome to Green and Red. Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People. A regular podcast on radical environmental and anti capitalist politics. Brought to you by Bob Bazanko and Scott Park.
1: Hi, welcome to the Green and Red Podcast. This is Bob Bazanko. Um Scott is away for a while, so I'll be going solo. And I'm really excited because today we're going to be talking to a historian who I really admire, and we're going to be talking about a book, which is really great, and about a topic, which I like to talk about, too. We have with us Brandon Wolf Honeycutt, who is the author of The Paranoid Style in American Diplomacy, which, if you're a historian, is a really great title, which which uh, I really enjoyed as well. Uh, Brandon got his undergrad degree at UC Santa Cruz, uh, PhD at Stanford and is now a professor of history at Cal State, Stanislaus. And we're going to talk today about Iraq, American policy in Iraq. Uh, remember, this is the Green and Red podcast. Um, Scott always does all the, the stuff about you know how to donate and where our our website is and stuff. And I don't even, I think it's greenredpodcast.org. I'm not even sure that, but it's in the show notes. So check us out. Um, we'll have information about Brandon in there too. And if you want to donate money, we'll take it, whether it jingles or folds. So, uh, anyway, but let's get started. First of all, Brandon, first of all, it's been a great pleasure getting to know you a little bit. And I loved your book. I recently heard you on a podcast and I was like, oh, man, I got to have this guy on. So welcome to the Green and Red podcast.
0: Well, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be on here. I always appreciate the uh, the, the scrappy perspective that you bring to history and politics and uh, pop culture and so much else so that's a, a thank and i'm you. a big fan of, of your your book on masters of war it was, it was a classic oh, thank,
1: thank you bro in my in I mean, my graduate uh,
0: education so it's a real honor to be here
1: Anytime i get to talk to somebody who's willing to self identify as a marxist and,
0: <laughs> and
1: like like a real marxist not like a Brooklyn Marxist.
0: Not, and not one of these uh, squishy, soft, cultural, you know, Gramsci yeah. Marx. I'm talking about right. the hard, you know, hardcore yeah. political economy, right? <laughs>
1: yeah. When people call me a reductionist, I'm not offended. So yeah, um, I
0: take that. I take that as a compliment. Yeah. You know, my dad used <laughs> to say, you know, uh, uh, there's no problem in life that money can't solve.
1: Right.
0: You know, and the less money you have, the more appealing that idea is. Right.
1: <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> so, uh, um, Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, the whole more money, more problems. Never. I never figured that out. Yeah. So. <laughs>
0: yeah anyway,
1: um, we're going to talk a lot about Iraq. But we're also going to talk about American foreign policy. One thing I want to talk about is uh, and if I forget, remind me, because it's always fun for me to talk about American labor and foreign policy, because I can get real snarky about that. And we're going to talk about the differences in the ruling class, because I think the left has to understand that. But let's, let's get started first. I think everybody knows a little bit about Iraq, right? Saddam Hussein was the worst person ever since Hitler and all that kind of stuff. But um. Why don't you give us a little bit of background? Because uh, your book covers the period before the, you know, heavy American intervention in, in the Gulf Wars, and uh, you spent a lot of time in the in the uh, '50s, the the time of the uh, Iraqi Revolution, the overthrow of Khomeini, which the U.S. had a big role in. Uh, you talk about oil politics. Uh, you have a great phrase. What what is it? Petro fascism or petro-Islamism? right
0: yeah petrodollar christianity
1: petrodollar christianity and petrodollar is muslim right so i want to talk about all that stuff but at any rate why don't you first give us a little background let's just really brief i know i'm asking a lot but let's say from the mandates to to the 50s just like a little bit about iraq you know it's carved up by the british in the 30s why don't you just tell us a little bit about that and take us up to uh the 1950s the post cold war or the cold war era yeah
0: Sure. Uh, Well, real briefly, as I think most people know, that uh, what's now Iraq was part of the Ottoman Empire um, since the 1500s. And during World War I, the uh, the British intervened, obviously, against the Ottoman Empire. They enlisted um, some local Arab forces. And in exchange for um, Arab participation in the Great War against the Ottomans, the British awarded their clients, in this case, uh, soon to be King Faisal, with the, uh, the, the throne of the um, new state of Iraq formed in the immediate aftermath of the First World War. So my book, the first chapter, I mean, my my most original research findings really begin with the 1958 revolution, but the first chapter is trying to set the stage, trying to introduce um, the, the audience, the readers, to what I'm calling the three main actor sets and that's a big part of the book is the the methodology, right? Almost more than the argument or the narrative is the methodology of trying to look at three main actor sets. One being the Iraqi oil nationalists that were seeking to um, take control of the Iraqi oil industry all the way from the 1920s. Uh, that story picks up after the revolution, but you can find uh, you know traces of it um, that go back to even before the state was created. So you have the Iraqi nationalists on the one side. You have um, the uh, the Iraq Petroleum Company, which is a consortium of the world's largest uh, oil companies, we're talking Exxon, Mobil, BP, Shell, um, uh, and uh, so that's the consortium that, as of uh, the 1920s, has a, uh, a a formal monopoly, an exclusive right to explore for, produce, market Iraqi oil, and then you have the American. Um, state, or the foreign policy making apparatus, which is trying to, as I say, mediate between the oil nationalists that want to take over the oil and uh, the oil companies that are trying to fend off that outcome. So um, there's some movement towards that across the 1920s, 30s, and, and into the 1940s. But the real decisive turning point comes when Iraqi nationalists overthrow the British installed Hashemite monarchy on uh, July 14th, 1958. Happy Bastille Day. And uh,
1: Isn't that the, isn't uh, that the he, same day the U.S. sent troops into Lebanon too, right? Well,
0: yeah, the U.S. sends troops into Lebanon the very next day for fear that the revolution there. Yeah. in Iraq might yeah. spread yeah. To, uh, to to Lebanon. At the same time, the British sent troops into to Jordan, and there was some concern in the immediate aftermath that the effects of the revolution might spill over. Um, and
1: just, just to kind of for, for our audience, th- this is also connected to the emergence of Nasserism, right? Arab yeah,
0: that's so. That's the big sort of turning point in the 1950s. That Nasser's the uh, kind of the um, heroic uh, figure that represents the hopes and dreams of a generation of uh, of uh, Arab nationalist modernizers in the 1950s comes to represent that spirit, and it is its Iraqi followers of Nasser that lead the, uh, uh, or at least he provides a a symbol of unification that brings all of the different Iraqi opposition groups together. Um, into a coalition that overthrows the monarchy because the monarchy under the the Hashemite monarchy was the, so, the so-called linchpin of the Baghdad Pact. And the Baghdad Pact is this, you know, NATO style military alliance that was designed to contain the regional influence of Nasser. So Nasser's revolution is 1952. He comes out more radical by the mid 1950s and the Baghdad Pact is organized to try to quote unquote contain Arab nationalism. With the rhetorical sleight of hand being that they call this a, a, a an alliance to contain, you know, communism. But of course, Nasser was not a communist. You know, um, uh, but so in any, any case, there's a tendency of uh, of describing nationalists as communists for, for strategic or rhetorical purposes. But yeah, Nasser represents the hopes and dreams of a generation that wants to overturn um, the sort of colonial relationships that are imbibed in things like the Iraq Petroleum Company Oil Consortium. And so it is. Um, it's Iraqi followers of Nasser that sort of provide the the leading element of the 1958 Revolution and then a lot of the story that I tell is about um after that revolution um sort of a breakdown of the of, of that Coalition those those Iraqi groups that came together um to bring about the revolution and then of course Iraqi politics breaks down and there are some factions that are more pro Nasser than others and um and that's a lot of what I try to sort out
1: well why don't you you know talk a little bit about that so the the um Karim Kasim emerges, and what what are his politics what's his background
0: um, he's kind of a, a, I would say representative of this broader tendency to uh, of this era to achieve some level of social mobility through the military right so he comes from very lower social origins his uh uh he comes from a kind of a mixed ethnicity or mixed sectarian background he's a his mother was a faeli um, kurd so that's a shiite kurd from the north so there's a kind of minority um experience there um he as i put it in the book he represents the free officer tendency, right? So the three main um, issues or the three main kind of tendencies, oppositional tendencies before the 58 revolution are you have the uh, the Arab nationalists, the kind of relatively right- wing Baath party um, which is which is on the on the if we're going to say the right of the political spectrum. you have the Communist Party, which is obviously on the left. And then you have the free officers, which try to kind of toggle between these two tendencies. And Qasim is trying to balance, draw strength or support or uh, contain at at whatever moment, um, uh, strength from from these different tendencies. So Qasim represents a kind of a, you would kind of say a quintessential, I don't want to say non-ideological, but very pragmatic kind of military men that just want modernization and aren't really committed ideologues. But saying that, um, he also, I think, does have a kind of uh, a sympathy or a kind of he leans towards the communists in that, in that Baathist. His sympathy is with uh, the lower classes. His sympathy, my reading is his sympathy is with uh, the communist party. Um, He brings in a lot of their, um, you know, members or fellow travelers to advise his oil policy. So I think he's naturally inclined to, uh, to sympathize and support the left and the communist party. And the Iraqi communist party in the forties and fifties is the single largest, most well-organized, best led, um, best program is, is kind of the, the most popular force in Iraq and and perhaps one of the most well-organized parties throughout the region. The Ba'ath, for example, on the other side are not a mass movement, right? They're not a, they're a very sort of elitist vanguard movement that sees themselves as the leaders of this modern, educated, um, enlightened generation that doesn't really have organic ties to the workers and the peasants, but almost doesn't see those as necessary. They see themselves the leaders of the nation. So you kind of have a bottom-up, Type formation with the communists on the one side and a top down type formation with the Baathists on the other, and Cossum trying to sort of walk the tightrope between those two tendencies.
1: Yeah, I, I always ask that because I think it's important for people to understand how important the Communist Party was <clears throat> in these anti colonial movements in the period. You know, after 1991, you know, there's this era of triumphalism and liberals. And then you had the equation where people on the left started to kind of, you know, tout um saddam and things like that so i think it's important to kind of understand there were real communists who were and now they remain important throughout that entire period right from 58 to 63 don't they
0: um they sort of do they sort of do um one of the kind of wrinkles in the story is that when qasem first came to power the biggest threat to his regime came from the Baathists because the Baathists wanted immediate union with nasser at least they said they did in if you that was the, the, the angle they were using for criticism. Turns out they weren't very sincere in that, but in any case, they're using that um, against him. And so he leans into a relationship with the communists and allows them to form a a, a people's militia force, a revolutionary sort of uh, a militia to counterbalance the Bathus in the army. Um, and so he, he's leaned towards the communists but at a certain point, he thinks that he's broken the power of the Baath. Saddam Hussein, as a young like twenty year old or something, was involved in this assassination attempt in 19, October of 1959, and it fails. And the Baathist leaders, you know, flee the country. Their leaders are arrested, and Qasim kind of thinks the Baathist power movement is is broken, and so he sort of uh, hems in the communists, and they become less influential mm-hmm. um, after 19 in about 1960 61. Um, and he's trying to, well, I my theory that I lay out in the book is that I think he's worried that there's going to be a kind of CIA or U.S. intervention if he doesn't put some distance between him and the communists. So he does kind of put some distance between himself and the communists in, in 1961. Um, and then uh, the, but they're still influential. They still have a large following. But the big turning point is that when the 1963 coup comes, this is the uh, one of these instances of the Jakarta method, right, of the idea of the CIA um, sort of at least at the very least watching um, with very uh, sort of approving eyes as the both went through this kind of very systematic campaign of house to house addresses and car license plate numbers and really kind of going, um, you know, uh, and very systematically um, trying to purge the the communist influence from the country, um, really demolishing its leadership. And so the communist influence in Iraq uh, it comes back in the in the in the 70s um, to a certain extent but the real sort of um, dynamic thrust of the Communist Party kind of ebbs by the uh, by the early 60s and at that point it's actually the 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 Nosferis, maybe somewhat ironically who kind of absorb or co-opt, the, much of their program, which has to do with nationalizing the oil, so spiritually, yeah, the communists are the kind of um, are the the you know the the visionaries sort of below the stratum that are kind of you know they're the spirit moving through time <laughs> in history. Sure. They're yeah. Hegelian about it, right? There, that's the that's the motor force of history there, but um, it's ultimately the nostrists that kind of pick up their their effort and you know modify it bring it to their um, uh, but but sort of follow through with that after the organized political power of the communists is largely broken yeah. by at least with association with the CIA in 63
1: and what's what are the oil politics going on right now because this is interesting you know because it's not you know we people on the left i think have this idea of these kind of monolithic or homogeneous forces all the oil companies want us the same thing but in fact um you don't have that in iraq and and oil politics are really important
0: yeah so here's one of the ironies right I think the book is full of full of ironies it's yeah. one of the major kind of um representational forms employed in the book but one of the ironies is that the oil companies are not behind the 1963 coup you actually have the Kennedy administration for its own reasons wants to uh wants to carry out this coup they think the that Kennedy well, he was he was going to end the Cold War and bring peace to the world yeah that's <laughs> not what's in my book anyway
1: <laughs> right. um, I, I'm just I'm a jackass and I have to Take a dig at those folks every chance I get.
0: They but, deserve it. They deserve it. I tried to take as many as as, as I could, so uh, they've gotten enough plaudits in the yeah. past that they can take a few on the chin, hopefully, from yeah. us on the scrappy sidelines. Anyway, <laughs> um, so my take is that the that Kennedy, it was the Kennedy's idea to not Kennedy's idea Kennedy's advisors and you as a as a Vietnam historian will will appreciate this it's Robert Comer's idea right before Robert Comer was Low bob classification Czar yeah. he was supposedly a Middle East expert who was <laughs> advising Kennedy on you know developing his early counterinsurgency strategy right so he's a CIA NSA person who um uh, believes that, you know, it's a, straight at Graham Greene, believes that the Both are the, uh, the the third force, right? They're not colonialists, right? They're not communists. They are an independent third force. They're nationalists. And Comer thinks he's got the bright idea, you know, that nationalism is the age of the future and the both are going to work with us. And he's got this whole kind of what I call a grandiose strategy. This isn't grand strategy. It's grandiose strategy. It's It's not realistic. It's not based on a on a kind of um, rational analysis of, you know, actual regional or political developments. And so for whatever reason, we can go into the, the foibles of why Comer comes to this position, but he comes to the position that Costum's a communist, largely because he nationalized, uh, you know, the, the IPC's concessionary area, started a phase nationalization. And he persuades my, my reconstruction of the sort of decision-making process is that he comes around and he conveys... Uh, to to Bundy and uh, you know, Bundy being the the main guy in Rostow, I guess a little bit, but mon- mainly gets uh gets Bundy to come McGeorge Bundy to come around. And then McGeorge Bundy prevails upon the Kennedy administration that this guy's a communist and we have to get rid of him. So they kind of arrive at this this decision and then they go to the oil company and say, Hey, we've got a great idea for you. We're gonna get rid of Cossum, who's a communist, and we're gonna install the both. And the oil companies are like that's a terrible idea. We don't want to be involved with that. When it comes down to it, and the Both have the same position. They both want to nationalize the oil, and we don't want either of those those things, right? And so the the oil companies are not on board with the oil company, and that's part of why the boss is coup sixty three doesn't work. Is that the oil companies don't collaborate. They don't play ball. They don't want to support. They don't want to support the boss. So that was a. Um, that was a kind of a big riddle for me to kind of uh, unpack and and try to understand right um why it was that uh that it's really the state trying to drag the companies along with this kind of harebrained scheme to quote unquote modernize the middle east which i right. take as a, an expression of a kind of hubristic sentiment of the uh of the the kennedy years right that they can bring the, you know the the you know the enlightenment to the middle east or so that they can right. modernize the region um but so and also I, just
1: for a little bit of background, because I didn't know this. The um, nationalization in Iraq is actually different than nationalization, let's say, in Iran, right?
0: Yeah, and they're, they're, they're in conversation with one another in that the Iraqis uh, took the lesson of, of, of Iran in 1953, and they learned from that, right? That Iran tried to do in one fell swoop to nationalize the whole of the British-controlled, British-owned oil industry, to take over the company, its shares, to take over its refineries, its pipelines, to take over all the property of the companies. And then the companies actually, so this is one of the ironies of the story, right? The story of the way oil is usually told is that oil is scarce and insecure and that you have to send gunboats to make sure that the oil gets out of the region to the world market. Where this is the exact opposite of what happened in Iran where where Mossadegh thinks that, you know, the Americans are anti-colonialist. They don't like the British. They had a revolution against the British. So he thinks he can nationalize the oil, establish kind of like Ho Chi Minh thought he could establish trade relations with the United States, right? He thought that he could establish a market for Iranian oil with the United States, the United States would sympathize with this movement. They would see that the British were, you know, being obstinate and and uh, recalcitrant and clinging to the nineteenth century. And he thought he could sell the oil to the United States or elsewhere in the world market. And on the contrary, the United States and the British send warships to blockade to actually interrupt the flow of oil. So it's not, it's not Mossadegh that suspended oil to the world market. It's the opposite way around, which is the British with American support, you know, boycott Iranian oil and don't allow Iran to sell it. And so Iran loses two thirds of its government revenue. Its political system is uh, destabilized and and made vulnerable to a coup. And so when Iraq goes through a similar uh, process, it's really learning from that. And it does not um, nationalize in one fell swoop. What it does is it takes back the concessionary rights uh, the, the oil company was only producing oil in, in, in really two two main uh, fields at that time. And so uh, Qasim says that you can continue to produce oil in those two sites, but all of the rest of the country is going to be opened up for competitive bidding. So it's a little different. And he's actually reaching out to American um, independent oil companies, those from Texas, for example, that are challenging the IPC monopoly and trying to kind of... Um, you know, uh, forge a kind of alliance um, against against the company. So it's a much more phased process, doesn't want to get into a position where they don't have access, build up the marketing capacity, find companies that are going to buy the raw the raw material before, you know, you kind of uh, risk a, a a direct confrontation with, uh, as I call it, the, the grim meat hook realities of the CIA, right? Yeah. um so, so the idea of uh, the, the oil companies not backing this coup is is, uh, is kind of interesting because of what I think is a kind of partisan uh, alignment or difference. If you think about the major oil companies, they're well represented um, by the, the Eisenhower administration, right? you got the Dulles brothers who come directly from Sullivan and Cromwell, who had actually represented those companies and all their business partners and are deeply sympathetic, um, to the oil companies and to their, you know, vision of the world, right? Their idea of a uh, free trade and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But on the other side of the register, you have, um, you know, domestic American oil companies that are on the opposite side of that, right? And they don't. So they went as, as far as 1957, 1958 to pass oil import quotas. That is to limit how much oil could be imported from the Middle East to no more than 10% of the domestic market. And so that's domestic American oil companies who are worried about low cost competition. It's much cheaper to produce oil in the Middle East than it is in Texas. And so they were, um, tr- so the Americans are not trying to get access to Middle Eastern oil, or at least one faction of Americans are actually trying to, to block um, you know, protectionism, right? They're trying to engage in protectionism to protect American markets from foreign competition. And you think, well, who is the, the best political representative of that Texas oil and gas tradition? It's like, well, where did the LBJ come from? Brian how did he Root. become, you know, House Majority Leader and Senate? You know, how did he? How did he rise? Well, it was by bundling yeah. and, and, you know, and channeling all of that oil and gas money and all that, you know, military industrial complex money and channeling it into the Democratic Party, and deciding which House races to support, right? And so Kennedy and um, and and especially uh, uh, Johnson. And Johnson was could have been the president in nineteen sixty, right? Or at least he ran for the yeah. the nomination. And so. Um, is so kennedy bring bringing him in is kind of indication that the what the way i read it is that the Ameri- that the kennedy and johnson administrations are far more sympathetic to the interests of the domestic american producers than they are the international companies and so there's a kind of a, a partisan difference at least in the early early uh, early 60s that kind of changes after goldwater and Irony there is like, you know, LBJ basically made himself a slave to the oil interest for the Texas oil interest for all these decades. And then the minute the oil companies have Goldwater, they abandoned him and put all their money into Goldwater and Nixon. And he ends up, you know, de- you know, sort of degrading himself and getting fucking nothing. So <laughs> that's kind of funny.
1: No, I mean, and I think that's really important to understand the way these different kind of parts of the, the capitalist class operate. Um, a lot of these guys, like I, I call them lump and oligarch nowadays, you know, cause they're mm-hmm. part of these like kind of old extractive industries that are like mansion, right. Or Mike Lindell or something mm-hmm. like that. And that's going on there. Um, Brown and Root and Johnson are very important in Vietnam too. I mean, they're, uh, I mean, if you look at like the difference between finance capital and Brown and Root in, in Vietnam, it's, it's incredible. I mean, nobody on wall street wanted to fight a war in Vietnam. They just thought that was insane. But, uh, <laughs> these old, you know, kind of industry construction, Rand and Root, organized labor, which we'll mm-hmm. get to in a minute because I think mm-hmm. that's important too. But um, okay, so we we brought it. Why don't you just talk about the, the actual coup and what happened, like just kind of a little bit? Because we brought it up to the coup. It's in July. Kareem Kasim is is ousted, and then and then with with American help, and then what the Americans do and what happens in Iraq. So in February of 1963, after maybe about a year, a year
0: and a half of the both sort of organizing and sort of a ingratiating themselves with the American embassy, putting themselves in position to be the successor regime. And uh, at a certain point, the Americans decide that, uh, you know, I, and I don't want to overstate the agency of the United States. I mean, a lot of what is happens, the outcomes are very much driven. You know, the causative agent here really is the BOF, but the United States is very optimistic or opportunistically kind of in some ways betting on the strongest horse or trying mm-hmm. to kind of, you um, Trying to influence influence uh, things that are not totally under their control. So, in any case, as as the both party's coming to power, the United States is sort of like cozying up to it. It's its political analysis is increasingly favorable, and they're evaluating the circum. You know, the 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 prognosis for a successful coup and what would be needed to successfully you know prosecute it and all their analysis coming through is that Qasem you know, has been providing urban housing and the big you know structural transfer transformation in Vietnam and Iraq and everywhere else in this period is the sort of um you know, uh, depopulation of the co- countryside, or at least the sort of um, rural movement to the cities as agri- Green Revolution and as there's overproduction of agriculture and whatnot. You know, so there's all these like recently displaced peasants who are living in what they call Sarifa districts, these sort of mud hut, kind of poor, down, downtrodden districts. And he engaged in these, uh, you know, these works of like Arab modernism of building beautiful public housing and, and social programs and women's rights and literacy programs and healthcare, all before he had gained control of the oil Right. I mean, didn't have expanded oil revenue, but it's just a shift in priorities. Uh, And so a lot of the the embassy analysis was that if you're going to take out uh, Qasim, then you have to uh, take out his base of support. And he's got, you know, tremendous base of support in the poorer districts of Baghdad and and throughout. And so a lot of the analysis leading up to the coup is how you can, quote unquote, neutralize. What's the line for apocalypse now? Like, um uh, uh, incapacitate with with extreme discretion or whatever, <laughs> like yeah. you know, um, not incapacitate, uh, uh, whatever they said. But in any case, to 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 liquidate or whatever they're you're liquidate.
1: I've seen in, in documents and, and exterminate and decapitate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so <you> gotta, yeah. <laughs>
0: that great line from Apocalypse Now. Uh, with, with extreme
1: prejudice, prejudice. right? Or- yeah, with yeah, extreme yeah.
0: prejudice. Yeah, yeah the, the yeah. great line from Ford Coppola. But in any case, so they're very clear beforehand that you've got to do this systematic roundup. And then you see the embassy reporting while in the like, talking about the, the mostly in the 48 hours, 72 hours, immediately following the coup of a kind of systematic purge going house to house. And then it kind of radiating out to the countryside and tracking down communist leaders wherever they might have scattered to in the north or the south. So throughout the kind of, uh, it happens in in February. So throughout the the spring and into the summer, they're kind of uh, rounding up quote unquote known communists or quote unquote fellow travelers, liquidating, eliminating that uh, influence influence in Iraq. And then from there, you know, uh, the Kennedy administration thinks this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. They're very excited. They think that this is gonna be the big turnaround in the region. In a lot of what comes around afterwards. So the immediately following uh, the coup, the, the Kennedy administration goes to the oil companies and tries to bring them on board and say, "Will you please give these guys a developmental loan? Uh, will you increase oil production? Will you, um, you know, uh, uh, give them a, a win in their own domestic political situation so they can stabilize their regime?" And so the Kennedy administration is coming at it from a political logic, especially a domestic political logic, where there are interest groups and whatnot and the oil companies are looking at a global balance of supply and demand and they're like wait a minute oil is collapsing there is the you know the old marxist law of the falling rate of profit right the over the tendency towards overproduction of every individual you know firm maximizing its own self-interest and thereby producing a kind of a, a generalized uh, production glut and so the big problem in the 50s and 60s is that world that world oil is overabundant and that profit rates prices are falling and profit rates are falling and this is terrible for you know, for for the companies. And so they have no interest. It's not in their economic interest to satisfy, you know, um, JFK's kind of like political fetish. Like that doesn't, that's not their their interest. They want to keep Iraqi oil. They love the dispute with Qasem because it gives them the perfect example, a perfect excuse to keep Iraqi oil under the ground. So that the overall amount of supply on world markets is depressed, or, or at least depressed, and and uh, the and the profit prices are high, and the profits, you know, uh, are high, and so, um, and so the oil companies immediately don't play ball, right? And then another sort of a strand to bring into the uh, the analysis is that the um, the Kurdish minority in the north raises a, an insurrection against against the both against this new regime that comes in. Um, essentially, the Kurds are an interesting, uh, kind of a complicated story, but they had supported, the KDP had supported the, the the move against Qasim, and they wanted autonomy and they wanted oil revenue and they wanted a million and one things in exchange for their support for the 63 coup. The Baath is unwilling to share that power. And so the Kurds go into uh, insurrection. Into and as a Vietnam historian, you'll like this, a lot of what's going on in the spring and summer of 63 is this kind of uh, interdepartmental debate about the sharing of napalm weapons with the both, right? Because there's an art, there's, there's this, you would have the, you would appreciate this from Vietnam standpoint, that there are always kind of more intelligent figures within the intelligence apparatus and the state department who are saying, you know, this isn't gonna work. So no. in our, and then they're, they're overwhelmed by the, you know, by the top level policy makers who are consumed with domestic politics or whatever. Um, and so you have, um, you have the oil companies who are don't don't want to pay don't want to play uh, a ball with this, right? They're worried about the. Uh, um, uh, sorry, what was I saying right before that? The.
1: Um, oh, we, you were talking about how the the uh, oil companies were didn't really want to help out Kennedy, or yeah,
0: and they're closer to the. Sorry, I got distracted with the with the reference to Vietnam, where it's kind of the same story. where the Arabists who um, have uh, a different. A different take, right? The oh, regional perfect. experts, yeah, the, yeah, the sure, people sure. who speak the language, who know the The, the China
1: hands. No,
0: the, when, yeah when that's I heard the, you that's on uh,
1: another podcast, when you mentioned that, I said, oh, the China hands. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So these are the old China hands. These yeah. are the old Arabists who have yeah. a kind of a different take. And so the Arabists within the State Department, the people who know the language, and right. my, my saying is that, you know, the more you know, the less influence you have. Right, yeah, because yeah, yeah, taking yeah, sure. the time to learn the language and get to know something about right. the cultural geography and the tribal makeup and the sex and all this, the belief by the kind of like national security types is oh, well, you can't have the global balance of power in mind, right? You've gone native, you've yeah. turned yeah, yeah, yeah. the yeah. perspective of yeah. the,
1: you know, uh, yeah. of this. John thing. Paul Van, they used to say that about John Paul Van, yeah.
0: Yeah. So it's the same story we've seen a million times elsewhere. But what they're saying, what the Arabists are saying is that this idea of equipping the Baath with napalm weapons will not put down the Kurdish insurgency. It will stiffen Kurdish resistance. It'll make them pissed off at Baghdad and it will drive them into the arms of the Soviets. They will conclude that they have no choice but to go try to get arms to wage their insurgency. So a lot of the a lot of the spring of 63 is the Erebus on the one side saying, don't do this, this napalm thing. You know, it's kind of interesting that napalm took on this kind of uh, naphthalene. It's it's an oil product, kind of interesting yes. there. Yes. Um, yes. You know, so uh, the Greek fire, right? It's, it's Greek fire. And uh, um, and so they're...
1: Dow uh, chemical, uh, too, right? It's
0: right. a chemical and it's about... Well, and it from Dow, it? a, I think Dow uh, produced it, didn't it? I think so. I think that was the big, uh, you know, Wisconsin thing, but it's also right, go, right, right, that's right, this right. frontier th- idea, right? The idea of the Fair. way you fight the other guys is you destroy their food producing capacity. Mm-hmm. That's what you're trying. So they want to use napalm to destroy the ability to, you know, the the, the old kind of like the winter, uh, you know, the winter campaign, just go into the Indian village and destroy yeah. them and destroy all their food supplies. Like this idea of destroying the enemy food supplies is the way to kind of break their will to resist. And you have the Airbus on the one side saying, "No, this is going to end poorly. Don't do the arming of the both with the with the napalm." Uh, and so, a lot of what happens in '63 is the Kennedy providing, you know, helicopters and military transports and napalm. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: I don't know if I ever came to the exact final document whether they actually delivered the the napalm or not, but it was a big, you know, um, controversy.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, But nonetheless, they're not able to put down the the Kurdish insurgency. They're not able to get the oil. Um, They run a very brutal and incompetent regime and uh, find themselves, uh, uh, in turn, thrown out uh, nine months later when the the Nasserists conclude that they're basically just too brutal and incompetent to uh, maintain power. And and so there's another coup. Let me go back
1: a minute, because um, earlier you had mentioned the Jakarta Method, and I have not read that book. I've heard good stuff about it. But this is occurring two years before Jakarta, and this is kind of what the U.S. did in Greece and, you know, like in the 40s. So um, why don't you talk a little bit about kind of the Americans? You know, I'm not going to say they're responsible for these slaughters, but they clearly participate in uh, the retribution against uh, Kareem Kasim. And another point, what you mentioned earlier, that that uh, Kareem Kasim had had um, armed these kind of communist paramilitaries or mm. I mean, mm-hmm. what happened to them? I
0: mean, it's kind of a sad story. There is that he demobilizes that popular revolutionary force in, uh, in ah. when he kind of had curbed the power of the communists right. in that 1961 period when he's trying to kind of, uh, my theory is that he's starting to move into a confrontational stance with the companies. And so he has to take these visible, he reaches out to the American ambassador, you know, says, Hey, you know, we've gotten through that rocky period and now we just want, you know, economic assistance and development and we're putting the communists in their box and, uh, So he demobilizes that force and um, you can probably point to that 1963 coup and say, you know, the, you know, Iraqis poured out into the streets and tried to defend the regime, but they weren't organized, they weren't armed, you know, and if there had been a, I
1: think it was like 100,000 people
0: or something, it was a pretty substantial force. I I don't, maybe, sorry, I'd have to look it up. It was a, you know, it was a, but
1: enough that it could have prevented the coup.
0: It okay. could have defended the coup for sure. I mean, there was like a nine hour battle in front of the uh, Ministry of Defense before they finally broke through. Um, and then another uh, almost a day of fighting inside the ministry. So, you know, uh, having a, a, a communist militia uh, really could have uh, helped, um, helped and cost then, him maintain his his regime for sure. And then
1: after the Americans sent people to work with the Ba'ath, right, to, to, you know, collect these people, attack them, murder them, so forth.
0: Yeah, so what I find, and, and I'm kind of building on some secondary, you know, a bunch of us scholars are kind of uh, grabbing what we can here. Uh, it looks like uh, you'll like this as a Vietnam person, the International Police Academy, right? The IPA, International Police Academy um, in the 50s. And I think this is really telling. In the 50s, there were a lot of these people who became both as uh, what they called National um, national Guard commanders, like militia leaders or police commanders, who did the kind of systematic purge a lot of the most prominent figures in that you know, campaign, had come to the United States to be trained in um, in the late mid and late 50s, to be trained in at the International Police Academy in Washington, D.C. in these kind of like crowd control and, yeah. and counterinsurgency techniques, right? So a lot of the people that carried out the violence in 63 had been trained by the United States. Yeah. The main guy that I think is the intelligence, kind of the mastermind, if you will, had been a U.S. military attache or had been an Iraqi military attache in the Washington embassy during the monarchy. Um, So there's a lot of ties to uh, the people that carried out this had had ties. And this is what I think is most telling, is that when these people come to the International Police Academy to get training, what I think is fascinating is when you look down the list of cities where they went to do their, quote unquote, interning, they went to like Louisville, Kentucky, and New Orleans, and in Birmingham, Alabama, and all these like hotbeds of like policing the the, the, set, so the right. Jim Crow yeah. color line, right? Yeah. So yeah. basically, they interned with these cops who are on the front line of this kind of global color line, mm-hmm. which I think is, um, um, you know, it's kind of revealing about the the cultural sensibility of uh, of, of that set, if you will.
1: You are listening to the silky smooth sounds of the green and red podcast. And as always, we thank you for listening to us. Uh, We really appreciate it. And then as always, uh, we would like to ask you to subscribe uh, to us on whatever format you listen to, whether it be on podcast or on our YouTube channel. Um, You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are on Linktree slash green and red podcast. And we now also have postcards. And if you have a coffee house or a library or a bookstore or someplace like that in your area, that might be uh, a great spot to put some of these. Just ask us and we will send them to you free of charge to spread the word about the Green Red podcast. And you can email us at greenredpodcast@gmail at Gmail to get uh, a, a packet of your of your postcards. Uh, and then if you really like us,
0: you can. Uh, Donate. And you know, we we are very happy to get the donation and have the small base of small donors that we have. Uh, and so you can either become a patron at patreon.com backslash podcast,
1: or you can make a one-time donation at greenandredpodcast.org and just hit that support button. It's also on the postcards. Uh, and so uh, you know, thanks for listening and enjoy the show. So uh, you said what about some months after um, the coup? Then the Nasserites, the bathists were not we doing a very good. So the Nasserites overthrow the bathists. What happens like from that point on? And and then there are oil nationalizations occurring in the sixties and seventies too, right?
0: Yeah. So um, the way I tell the story is that the 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 Nasserists turn out after the basically the uh, the the communists for all intents and purposes get kind of ushered off stage, and so at that just that I'm not it,
1: I'm not big on like numbers and things, the numbers games, but how many cause I've heard all kinds of numbers about Iraqis who were who were slaughtered after the sixty three coup, people on the left, people who supported the communist group. What what kind of like what what kind of slaughter, what kind of revanchism was there? I mean, is this okay, like widespread uh, good, or
0: good question so it's not on the scale of say like jakarta indonesia oh, yeah. or brazil or some of these bigger ones but it you know um so estimates are anywhere between depending on which source you're you're going at somewhere between 1800 and 5000 are basically rounded up and systematically murdered which yeah. is not you know which is a, a very su- substantial uh it's you know in number. the immediate yeah. weeks and yeah. afterwards but then yeah. there's a lot of violence and a lot of torture and a lot of stuff yeah. that goes on throughout the summer so it kind of depends on where you're starting the clock but I think the 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 you know the
1: and this is generally the both and with U.S. support.
0: Yeah, and so that's always the tricky part is is how much U.S. support, what what role. So a lot of times the the uh, the conversation revolves around the idea that the United States provided lists, right, mimeograph lists of names, addresses, and license plates, right? That's the and the person that would have been in charge of what they call uh, telepathy or something, the wireless transmissions. Yeah. He had been. Um, working. He had been he had uh, worked in the U.S. embassy and he very much had close ties to the United States. And um so one speculation has been the United States provided a, a hit list, if you will.
1: But they right. would have wouldn't the Iraqis have better lists than the Americans,
0: which is exactly the point of trying to overstate the. Oh, OK, the OK. I was,
1: right. so, I was wondering about that when I heard that. It's like, well, how could the Americans yeah. have better listen to the Iraqis? Yeah,
0: they, they really don't. They really don't. And I think the Iraqi side of the equation is that the Americans. Uh, I I actually Nate Santino uh, shared a couple of documents with. Oh, me. Nate, yeah, good friend
1: you of mine. You know my. Nate? Yeah, you know Nate. Yeah, another another, so, another Paisano. Yeah, he's in. Houston.
0: Yeah, so he's yeah. actually. uh he's okay. actually uh, uh, sent me um, uh, stuff that he's come across, which are specific lists that oh, were okay. compiled in 1961-62 one, sixty two. They're called a, a who's who of who's a communist in oh, Iraq, okay. right? And so. I think I inside joke, maybe somebody will pick it up. I think I list uh, one. I describe one of those documents that, uh, provides a list of 205 known
1: communists yeah, yeah. right and that being <laughs> yeah. to
0: mccarthy or whatever i think it's i and the I'm next one was 112
1: those. and then it was 70 and yeah <laughs> yeah so
0: i forget how many are actually on that list i right. chose to describe it as 205 in the book right, just because right. that number kind of has has residents <laughs> yeah. back to mccarthy you know but but it's it's a you know 150 you know some less than a, i think it's a little bit less than okay. that in yeah. one list, another list has a uh, hundred names or so, or maybe it's another 50 names or something. Yeah. So a, a fairly small amount, but the Americans don't know anything. They don't know their ass right. from their elbow. They don't know anything about who's who, about now, who. Were
1: they providing like weapons or anything like that? Or Yeah. So
0: that's the theory is that um, money and weapons um, would have been more consequential, yeah. but none of that gets to it because they had guns. Yeah. They yeah. had intel. You know, they had everything. They What they didn't have was American diplomatic support. Right. And American military aid and the American imp- impromptu right. The the stamp of approval from the Kennedy administration that they really were right. That's what that's what the Americans, the prestige, the Americans had prestige to offer and legitimacy. You know, that's what the Americans kind of offered the Both, and the Both thought that that was their trump card. Right. They mm-hmm. would say to their their in their arguments against the Both was divided between different factions. The Baath are fighting with the communists, they're fighting with the Nazis, they're fighting with everybody else. And the the sort of the top of the party would say, hey, we have CIA support, so you have to do what we say. You know, they would kind of like use that as their kind of um, their point of advantage, right? Their, their leverage that they had was that they could get the Americans to, you know, do what they wanted. Um, so... Um, you know so there, there's always this issue of, of anytime you talk about you know one of these things in the third world is you know how much agency is as we think right. through the causal mechanism how much agency to ascribe to the united states how much is the united states responding to initiatives that are outside its its uh um you know ability to control and uh, this is a perfect example to kind of look at the internal external right you've done yeah. that in vietnam right How the internal dynamics versus the outside power you know it's uh, i don't know there's ever yeah, a well i think i think that.
1: a lot of these people don't understand to me at least there's a difference between agency and power like you know the vietnamese everyone says well ZM had agency sure so what but he had americans for it so you know without the americans ZM would have still been flopping on people he was the cato calin of south of like southeast asia right he's flopping on people's couches he had, he was nobody so i think people yeah. don't get that like you know yeah the I, you know, to the the have agency but but the americans are there with a lot of money and they're not telling them not to do things, and they have weapons and they have training. And so, yeah. yeah. I, I, I think
0: when it that. comes to questions of agency, I always like to not overlook the agency of the Central Intelligence
1: Agency. Right? <laughs> well, like <laughs> I said, they, you know, before we right went there in on, the fucking before, name. Well, I know. And then before we went on, I was <laughs> this new trend in Vietnamese studies that essentially like exempts the Americans from the war. You know, like the one mm-hmm. book, you know, Vietnam's War, what's it, a Hin Lang Lian You know, it's actually Le Zhuan's War. Fucking Wong longest like Nietzsche's Superman. He does it all by himself, and the Americans yeah. don't even really appear in the damn book. You know, five hundred twenty-five thousand yeah. troops and four million tons of bombs and napalm and all that. And it's just, yeah, it's just, it's nuts. Yeah. So you know, yeah, Bestner. I'm sorry. Bestner
0: and Lojewall have recently uh, crit- criticized taking that tendency too far trying to exaggerate the agency and almost absolve the United States of actually having moral political, uh, you know, yeah. responsibility well, well, for the but they're, they're legit.
1: Power. They can get away with that. I've been saying that for years, but nobody gives a shit what I think. So <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, well, I, ever since I pissed off the people in Lubbock, you know, so. Uh, um, but, well, I'm okay. sure they'll piss somebody off. I, I like I said, I kind of told you I'd probably go on rants and stuff. So getting back. So uh, what happens after 1963 then?
0: Yeah, so in my telling, what happens after 1963, after the November coup, which is kind of like a corrective sure. counter coup, yeah. my my take on that is that basically you're rejoining the story that the noceros that, that took power from the Baathis in November of 63, they represent that same kind of free officer tendency that Qasim had been a part of. Um, and so they rejoin the effort, right? They re, they they reinitiate, they pick up where Qasim left off. They start laying the institutional groundwork for establishing an independent oil company, for reaching out to those. American independent oil companies that could possibly, you know, uh, form an alliance with against the, the majors, and then of course that puts the freaking Kennedy administration and Johnson in this awkward position of having to go to Sinclair Oil and Union Oil and uh, and, and all these other kind of uh, um, continental go to all these kind of uh, these oil companies. And say you better not do deal with the Iraqis because. And they're trying to come up with the reason why. So on the one hand, they're going to the oil company and say, "You better make a deal with the Iraqis," and then they're going to the independent company and say, "You better not make a deal with the Iraqis," you know. Um, so they're in this very uh, awkward position. Um, So in any case, after 63, the Nostras come to power. Uh, They put some very sort of, uh, um, the main protagonist of my story, a person named uh, Dr. Asib, they put these very competent uh, oil experts, highly educated uh, people in positions of uh, of influence to uh, what they call to uh, implement what they call the July measures, which are an effort to uh, um, socialize the Iraq economy. And they build, they nationalize banks and a bunch of big commercial establishments in in preparation for eventually nationalizing um, the, the oil industry. So there's a lot of action that happens in that early part of the book. And then from 63 until the latter part of the book is kind of charting the kind of ebbs and flows of the notarys as they try to carry forward what I'm calling the, the communist idea as they're trying to push the uh, the oil national agenda forward largely by reaching out to like as I said the American independence but they're forming they kind of want to stay wary of the Soviet Union because of you know the the, the uh, you know implications of that but they're uh, forging very close relations with France especially after France kind of does an about face in the Cold War after Algeria um, they, uh, they're, they're reaching out to, uh, to West Germany, to Italy, and they're, um, kind of trying to build up these international relationships. They're going to be an alternative to the IPC. And so there's a kind of, uh, it, the book there kind of just follows the ebbs and flows, the one step forward, two steps back as the kind of pendulum shifts back and forth within Iraqi domestic politics. And, um, and, uh, uh, slowly they're kind of getting towards the moment in the latter sixties where they're um, finally able to carry out this coup d'etat. Sorry, yeah, carry out a coup and eventually uh, uh, at least a coup against the oil companies.
1: Yeah. You have time for a couple more questions? Sure, yeah, yeah, I'm here. Yeah, this is uh, Brandon Wolf Honeycutt, who is the author of uh, The Paranoid Style in American Diplomacy, Oil and Arab Nationalism in Iraq. I couldn't give it a higher recommendation. This is the Green and Red Podcast. I always forget to do the uh, station uh, promos during during the show. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I always forget to do that. Luckily, we're not FCC regulated. That's why we can like say I fuck can swear. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm in Texas, but I come from Ohio and I'm an Italian kid. So they always joke that I used to speak the Yankee alphabet fucking A fucking B fucking. B.
0: <laughs> anyway,
1: um, no, this is really fascinating stuff. Um, Let's kind of jump up a little bit, and and this is outside what you cover in the book, but you know, between 1980 and 1988, the United States was a, was a huge supporter, right, of Baghdad in its war against Iran, which was then seen as a, as a larger threat, a larger enemy. Uh, and yet within barely two years, the United States is preparing to invade Iraq and and destroy the Ba'athist regime, which it takes a decade to do that destroys iraqi society in in a lot of ways how does it get to that point where the united states is kind of supporting um and and you can confirm this because it's one of my favorite stories ever and i've often told it even though i don't know if it's true because i want it to be but apparently the the uh uh nixon was supporting the kurds and then they decided it was wasted money so they withdrew support and saddam goes in and gases them and Kissinger famously says uh, covert operations is not missionary work. Is, That's is that where the correct? line
0: comes from. Yeah. Oh, from good. I,
1: I want that to be true. Yep. That's my favorite. Yep. That's work.
0: in there. You can track down the exact document or. A,
1: yeah. It's, oh, good, good. I think it's right there in Frost. <laughs> uh, yeah. My, I use that line all the time. So anyway, but at any point, how do you get from that where the United States is, you know, kind of supporting the Baathists, to where they become the greatest threat since Hitler and the United States has to go in and, um, you know, April Glasby essentially green lights them. And then, so you just, you know, what do you think about that? I'm asking you a lot of different questions at the same time. Right. When that happened, I remember when that happened, people said, well, Bush is setting them up. Right. He's, you know, I said, ah, no, but after I saw the Glasby transcript, it's like, eh, probably, you know, so anyway, if you want to just kind of take us through the eighties and into that.
0: Yeah. Okay. so um, one might be an obligatory kind of caveat of a of a uh, of a kind of radical kind of uh, historicist notion that the past is uh, is uh, each instance in the past is unique. And I studied a particular moment in the 50s and 60s and into the 70s. And I looked at primary source documents and like and so one of the things that Bart Bernstein used to teach when I was uh, in grad school is that the past will always surprise you right? That mm-hmm. uh, you didn't necessarily put it in these words, but that, you know, um, history is cunning, right? It never really works out or unfolds the way that you might sure. think that it does. Sure. And that when you go into the archives, you should have an open mind, because you'll be presented with things that contradict your expectations, your ideology. And so you just want to kind of go in with a kind of like, you know, Zen-like yeah. state of just absorbing whatever information you come across. and and uh, And that's the way to understand. Because he's saying the past is always going to surprise you. It's never, you know, kind of like what it appears to be. There's a world of difference between what you think happens and what the newspapers say happens. And then, as Bart says, you know, you get into the documents and you go, oh, that's not what happened. You're talking
1: to a guy who's been accused of being an apologist for the military on Vietnam. Because, like, I did not begin that by thinking these guys are against the war. I thought they were all Dr. Strangelove, you know, who wanted to blow. And I, I actually think a lot of people on the left don't do that, which is unfortunate. So at any rate.
0: Yeah, I have the same situation where I wrote a book that's, in, believe it or not, rather sympathetic to the oil companies, the big yeah. ones. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because i found documents that did not exactly. fit like very early in the process i was looking at john j mccloy who you would know from that era sure right sure. john j mccloy's papers at amherst i'm li- my one of my earliest research trips i'm i'm you know doing my first kind of like getting in the the trenches of the archives and i come across a set of letters from the from 1967 1968 where john j mccloy is representing the uh, major oil companies and he's uh, sending letters to the st- the department the, um Secretary of State and the State Department saying that American foreign policy, its preference for Israel and its support for Israel after 1967 and before, is alienating the Arab street and making life very difficult for the oil companies, and that this is totally contrary to American interests, and so the oil companies are pushing the uh, the the Johnson administration to change its policy to uh, use its diplomatic or whatever other leverage to get Israel to withdraw from the territories occupied in the 1967 war, and the oil companies are deeply frustrated. You know, and Rostow is going to is going to Johnson and saying, Haha, you know, um, you don't have to do what these big oil men says. Just show them some polls showing the American people support Israel. And um, right. So so you have this kind of like the oil companies who are arguing against the administration's policy with regard to Israel. And I was like, well, I don't really have a way to explain that, given my my uh, you know previous exploit uh, expectations. And so a lot of the the. Um, a lot of the story is trying to me unravel unravel that story. So I guess in brief, the, the the way to put that, and then I will get to the '80s, is that um, after 1967, uh, the oil companies, as I just said, they start really putting the heavy press on the State Department on the Johnson administration to restrain Israel. Right, and they think that um, this is going to help preserve their um, operations. Right, their their property, their 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 business in the Middle East. They're saying we're going to get thrown out. Your policy with regard to Israel is going to get us thrown out of the Middle East. That's more or less a verbatim quote. Right, so they're pushing the the companies to do that, um, and they're not wrong. They're absolutely right. They they have men on the ground that speak the fucking language and they know what's going on. They're reading the newspaper every day. They're translating it, sending it back to the London office. They have intelligence agents or uh, analysts in Beirut and Baghdad everywhere. They know it in Cairo. They know what's going on. And they're saying... Um, they're saying they're about to get nationalized. And they're absolutely right, because in, in May of 1968, right, after the boil of the, of the 1967 war is, you know, boiling for almost a year now. And, and, and uh now the Iraqis are poised. To, all they have to do is push the button. They've made agreements with with France, with with uh with with Germany. Most importantly, now they've made agreements with the Soviet Union, they're ready to push the button and um nationalize the oil. And right when they're about to push that button, lo and behold, there's another coup d'etat. Right in in, July of 1968. Now there's another coup d'etat that overthrows the Noceros and puts the kibosh on the effort to nationalize the oil. Right. And that's the night, that's the July uh, 68 coup that brings the Ba'ath back into power. And for two years, the most important uh, element of the Ba'ath, the Ba'ath is divided, but the most important element of the Ba'ath, actually, Saddam's faction is like reaching out to the United States and saying, hey, let's do business. You know what? All you have to do is just like issue some symbolic statement about Palestine and, you know, we can we can do business and the Johnson administration will not do it. They will embrace the Baathist coup of 68, which is for me is ironic because it was the state that was pro-coup, pro-Baath in 63. And now by 68, the tables are turned and the oil companies are pro-Baath and the Johnson administration is anti-Baath. So it's like, well, what's what's going on there? And the, the the point is, is that you know Johnson he sees enemies everywhere. The world is closing in on him. He's getting all paranoid. He thinks you know the war is going terribly, and he's looking for enemies. And there's this whole great you know the McAllister book about the Israel is the counter metaphor to Vietnam. The United States is you know the pitiful helpless giant in Vietnam that can't do anything, and Israel is this superhuman power that can you know move through space and time endlessly. And so the Johnson administration. I go into the whole like how Johnson's raised in this Christian fundamentalist, this Christian Zionist tradition that sees Israel as essential to the second coming of Jesus. And this is when how Lindsey is writing his stuff about the, yeah, yeah. you know, the the late the the yeah. uh, the, the second coming of Jesus, yeah. and how you know the Jews being at home in Israel is going to be the precondition to the Armageddon. And like there's all this crazy shit going on in American popular culture at that moment. And so for all these reasons, and Johnson is sympathetic to the the. To, Texas oil companies that are competing with the international companies, for, so for all these reasons, Johnson really doesn't have time a day for the Baath or for the oil companies telling him, you know, to support the Baath. Uh, and so after two years of trying to get the Americans to play ball, Saddam Hussein, uh, as the kind of the power behind the, scene, the scenes in Baghdad, he, he says, "Fuck this! We're gonna, you know, I'm going to I'm going to Moscow." And uh, we're going to purge the we're going to purge the both of any sort of pro-Western elements. We're going to make it hardcore left. We're going to, you know, uh, form agreements with the Soviet Union. And we're going to carry through the oil nationalization. We gave the Americans the chance. I said, you know what, give us a face saving deal and we'll let your company stay there forever. And the Americans didn't take the deal. So Saddam said, fuck it, I'll I'll take the oil. And uh, and so from 1970 to 72, he coordinates with the Soviets and kind of uh, spearheads the, the effort to take over the oil. So if you're someone like uh, Bob uh, Richard Bob whatever Dreyfus you know um uh, he wrote a book like uh, in around 2003 called the 30 year itch right um which was the idea that the Iraq war of 2003 was motivated by trying to uh, overturn or, or reverse this yeah. oil nationalization that happened 30 years prior um But that misses the kind of uh, the dialectical nature of history's unfolding, if you will, or it misses the kind of the zigs and the zags of history. And as you mentioned there, you have this moment of the the mid-70s leading up to 1979 when they have a big revolution in Iran, and all of a sudden Saddam Hussein and the Ba'ath seem like the best way to counter that kind of third-worldist, you know, revolutionary upsurge. Um, And so the United States, uh, uh, according to some versions, Alexander Haig has a... uh, has a memo out there, um, you know, saying that uh, Carter apparently gave a green light to. Uh, Haig believed in a in a re- recently declassified memo. Hey, Alexander Haig believed that Carter had given um, Iraq a green light to invade Iran in 1980. Um, as that war goes on, who knows if that green light story is real? But as that war goes on, the United States, uh, as early as 1982, is providing. Uh, the chemical precursors, and not just the chemical precursors for napalming of the Kurds, uh, or or actually first against the Iranians and then later against the Kurds, but I guess at the same time, um, but most importantly, uh, satellite intelligence of where Iranian troop concentrations were, knowing that the Iraqis were armed with these crop dusting helicopters, U-40s that the, that the United States has provided with crop dusting for the middle of a fucking war where nobody's dusting any crops and then giving them the, the, the chemical precursors. And the United States gives all the satellite intelligence you know to to where to where to drop the where to drop the uh the, the gas and whatnot yeah so that's all through the 1980s you know the, the united yeah. states shooting down the iranian jetliner the united states uh uh watching standing as as, as an iraqi jet uh shoots down an american you know the us bombs the us the stark like mm-hmm. so in the 1980s and then as you mentioned you know the glassby thing um it looks like uh you know it, it uh united states is 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 more or less engaged in that war in the 80s i mean actually reflagging kuwaiti tankers and 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 right in the middle of it and so then you go well how do you get to the radically kind of like uh going to war in 1991 like that seems like a a, um you know that seems like a, a a strange turn of things right um and uh, you know that's not the area i i, I look at with primary documents and i am kind of a archival rat i really like the stuff yeah. that i've learned on the basis of primary sources and anything that comes by way of a secondary source i'm going to you yeah. know scratch my head until i've been able to formulate my own kind of uh, um point of view. But my take is that, you know, I call in the book, I'm really taking issue with what's sometimes called like the realist theory of international relations, which sees the state as a kind of um, unified personality that has the ability to kind of like rationally calculate what's in its interest. And I see the state as a kind of, you know, an arena of competition, if you will, to the kind of idea, the idea that, you know, there are all these different factions and the Treasury wants one thing and the CIA wants one thing and defense wants another thing and Wall Street wants this and interior wants that. And, you know, and so I don't really see a lot of like coherent policy coordination at the top. And I don't think the Americans knew what the fuck they were going to do after the Soviet collapsed. Like that was the whole thing the Soviets were there that provided a force to give your life meaning. That was the whole, that was the whole thing. It was a provided justification to spend all this money on the military. Like, and so when the, the Soviets collapsed, I just, I don't think the United States really had a coherent thought about what the, I mean, there's a national security memorandum from like, um, like, like uh, before the Gillespie thing that said that Saddam was supposed to be the new sheriff of the Gulf that, you know, um, They were kind of looking to Iraq to be the role that that Iran had played. Um, And so this is kind of, I mean, again, I haven't looked at it in close detail. And I do hope to someday write volume two of the book to to, to look at this in more detail. But it seems to me that the the policymaking is ad hoc. It's disorganized. It's unclear about what its interests. It's internally riven. I don't see a clear, coherent strategy. You know, there it's it's very yeah. ad hoc in, in, in my sense. So uh, that's an unsatisfying answer. No, no, say. no.
1: I I think Mike oh. Clare was on the something. What was the name of his book? Like In Search of Enemies or somebody. Basically, he said, you know, with with the end of the Cold War, with the demise of the Soviet Union, people are saying, OK, we can cut the defense budget and we can do all these other things. And so they had to find, you know, new enemies and the war on drugs fizzled. And so Saddam and, you know, uh, weapons of mass destruction and all that shit. Kind of fill yeah, the strategic void, confusion
0: so. we shouldn't yeah. over ascribe too much rationality to state planners like we oh, should yeah, assume yeah. that they're like logical machines like yeah. you know that walter benjamin idea of like uh the the chess playing uh yeah. you know the, yeah. the, the dude that you know this this logical machine that figures out everything in advance it's like they're not that
1: exactly well i mean and, and you know vietnam is a perfect example of that whoops you know i mean especially that's why conspiracy theories conspiracy theories are so precise and everything works out perfectly you know and it's preposterous but i mean in vietnam these guys like half of them couldn't you know tell their ass yeah. from a hole in the ground and they're they're it's making a shit problems. show they don't know what they're doing they just have a power oh, and they're oh, insulated oh. from
0: the costs of their they're insulated from their own mistakes yeah. and so the fact that there's no accountability means that you know nobody's ever asked to uh, you know explain why shit didn't work out the way you said it was going to well no but- and I, and
1: i mean this is what kind of got me with trump because the left portrayed this guy as some kind of incredible super monster playing 3d chess and all that it's like he's a fucking idiot he gave wall street big tax cuts after that they wanted nothing to do with him you know he's he's not some mastermind i mean everybody's snitching you know uh granted he's a very dangerous guy but i mean you know he's he's a fucking idiot and And it's not you know when everybody just is in fear They don't do it. They're paralyzed instead of actually getting off their ass and going out into the streets. Oh, it's a coup. It's fascism. It's a coup. It's fascism. We're doomed. They're going to steal the election. So make sure you vote. You know, that kind of shit. It's just
0: everybody. Everybody knows the first rule of coup making is have the military on your side.
1: I I, than General Flynn. (laughs) I wrote about that. Like I'm taking I'm bragging here in in this early 2020. I was writing articles saying the military and Wall Street hate Trump. He's going (laughs) to leave. Like, I, I I take credit for that one, you know, because, like, I, I studied the military. It's not like I'm a fucking genius. I have no connections. It's just mm-hmm. common sense. Millie hated Trump. They all hated Trump. The military is 40% non-white. So this guy's out there fucking inciting a race riot. You know, it's not that hard, but the left would rather live in panic and fear. One mm-hmm. last thing, because I've kept you a long time, and I'm just doing this because this is part of my own snark, but... And I said this early on because I've studied it, too. The afl because, you know, I think you and I were we were obviously on the left and in a perfect world, we would love to see a radical, vibrant labor movement. But in fact, especially when it comes to things like foreign policy, labor is actually a very reactionary and, and you know, damaging force. So you just talk a little bit about what the FLCO did in in um, in, uh, in Iraq.
0: Okay, well, best thing I can do here is refer listeners and and viewers to Weldon Matthews' work, right? Um, He has actually done the work. I'm just citing his pointing out that in 1963, an affiliate of the AFL-CIO, you know, did one of these like anti-non-communist union uh, uh, jobs, right? Where they're going and they were involved in trying to build up a non-communist Iraqi union to counter... um, the communist
1: influenced iraqi hey, we're doing that at that very same moment in brazil and, and guiana yeah. yeah
0: and so i guess you know part of uh um Part of what I'm saying there is I don't see that as anomaly or somehow like oh yeah, wow, right. this is strange. No. That the, that this was part of the whole you know Treaty of Detroit, the yeah. idea that the labor unions are part and parcel of corporate America and that they it, work they, overtime to yeah. help those corporations go global. And then, of course, the key irony here is that after those corporations go global, move all their production platforms overseas, they, they and American and and manufacturing is eviscerated,
1: yes. they density,
0: yes. you know, yes. declines, yes. and then they're yes. like, oh, what happened? Well, you fucking helped the corporation. Yep. take over the fucking world what do you think yep. is going to happen
1: they, they come, also yeah.
0: i am like i'll straight up i'm like a marxist i believe in like Karl marx and and you know uh, i believe in like alien uh you know labor theory of value all that stuff yeah. but the idea that labor unions have some transhistoric morally righteous mission is like that's not true like yeah. labor unions represent workers they're trying to get better wages and better working conditions so if what you're doing is guarding prisoners, then your fucking union is going to try to get you better wages and conditions for guarding prisoners. If you're building pipelines, they're going to like it. If you're (laughs) a cop, unions are not a political force. They're politically neutral. Some unions are good. Some unions are bad. the,
1: The strongest unions in America are like cop unions, which is tragic, you know, but they are. They're good. They're good at what they do. They were good. You know, I, this came up to me, you
0: know, in the the idea, like when Bernie was going around and I I tried to poke around, I'm a union member and it it means I get more health benefits than I, I hope, knock on wood, I hope I don't need, you know, I have like great health insurance and a good job. And like, I'm, I'm thankful that my union helps me have a nice standard of living. But the fact that my union looks out for my economic bottom line doesn't make the world a better place. No. Like, my, I mean, when when this came around Bernie, I was like, hey, what does our union have to do to, you know, get involved with, you know, all these unions trying to support Bernie? And they're like, oh, no, we don't do that. We don't get involved in politics. I'm like, well, okay, so you want to get me, like, dentures? But, like, if the world's going to fucking blow, you know, yeah. catch on fire, yeah. how does that, right? So um, so I'm not an expert on labor history. No, <laughs> like, no, 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 I, I just, understand. I, 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 just i just with you.
1: I, I've studied that. I've actually done some, you know, so it's always been a fascinating topic. In the 80s, AIFLD was really active in like Guatemala and Honduras and places like that. It's basically working with death squads, you know, Colombia. Yeah. Um, That's what actually was, were killing union leaders in those places, you know. Yeah, that's what
0: kind of tipped me off is way back undergrad. Dana Frank gave a talk one time where she was talking, I think, about Honduras or Central yeah, America yeah, about yeah. labor, of doing just that, of, of death squatting, you know, of
1: uh, of the unions. Like, you know, so so there's no reason to, you know, give give them a pass. Uh, I mean, just like in the last six months I've had, you know, old school, long time union people call me like pro-Putin. Not I don't <laughs> want, I, Putin's a monster, but I don't want to see a bunch of people killed, you know, and I think <laughs> there should be a negotiated you know, settlement as soon as possible. Yeah,
0: when have American arms ever made anything better? Right? Come on. It's,
1: yeah, it's a war for NATO, right? I mean, I mean, not. I'm not a reduction. It's not a conspiracy. It's like NATO's doing real well. The, yeah, Mearsheimer's did all, all
0: this pretty well, I think. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the idea that this fucking country can automatically fucking spend trillions of dollars when exactly. you count. Them. Yeah, when you yeah. count the black budget of the intelligence and all that, yeah. plus the regular spending, plus yeah. all these supplementals that yeah. automatically they can't do shit about, you know, abortion or forest fires or, uh, floods or infrastructure. And yet they crack, can just you know, push a button and send trillions out the door that somehow doesn't cause inflation.
1: Yeah. Student debt, you know, they fucking can't even like, you know. Uh, executive order get rid of student debt they won't do that right yeah they won't do Uh, that
0: and they look at the fucking all the money they dumped into afghanistan over the 1980s and all the hell that that caused and they're going to try to do the fucking same thing in ukraine
1: yeah yeah now like you know you see with with um who are they giving
0: that money to? They got no accounting. <laughs> they have no fucking. Oh, I know. Have, I know. Those yes. those weapons are going to fuel civil conflicts. And oh, and you're going to have right uh,
1: the emergence of even more right wing kind of paramilitary, you know, like the Azov battalion, the Proud Boys, you know, a bunch of these. They can't ho-
0: pass an pass. audit. Yeah. They can, I want to go to a conference. The amount of po- paperwork I have to document to go yeah. to a conference or a library. They yeah. don't have to show anything. Yeah. They don't have to show any accountability. They have no idea where that stuff's going.
1: Oh yeah, now you have you know Nancy's excellent adventure to Taipei, and you know the NATO uh, NATO liberals. I'm I I wish I could take credit for that term, but I know I'd heard it before, but I like using it, and I've turned a bunch of people onto it. But uh, um, you know, again, people are you know you're pro-China. It's like it doesn't yeah. fucking matter. You know, <laughs> it's just why why there's nothing to gain. There's no reason for her. I mean. If I always joke, like I'm a sports fan, if she if she and Schumer and you know Biden and Harris were the managers of like a single A minor league baseball team, they'd have been fired long ago, you know, and yet these geriatric- as her
0: stupid husband, as far as statecraft goes, she's driving ship of state a drunk. I like this yeah, woman. Has no right. is it's it's she's trying emotional. to she's trying to juice her own stock portfolio. We're, oh, we're there, no either. doubt,
1: no, no doubt, no, no, no. I mean it's it's anyway. Um I, I wanted to talk to you, like I said, I, I have your book, I skimmed it, but then I heard you on a podcast, like, oh, I definitely have to talk to him, I could do this for like hours and we'll have to have you on again. Um, I think it's important, I mean, obviously, because for most people, Iraq begins in like 2003, and even though I think Americans have kind of a, a negative view of it, which is good, but they're still, I think they buy into the kind of whole Saddam Hussein was this new Hitler and the US had no choice and all that stuff. And I think it's important to understand too, especially like you pointed out how the oil companies the size of the oil companies might differ. The State Department may have a different view than the White House or the CIA and the oil companies. And, you know, because imperialism and this is like the debates I've had with the Kennedy crazies, the Oliver Stone nutcracker factory there. Like to them, you know, as long as Kennedy doesn't blow up the world during the missile crisis, he's a dove. And mm. and I think they need to understand is and your work really points that out imperialism works in a lot of different ways. Colonialism works intervention works they all work differently and there are different strategies for them The ruling class has countless strategies both at home and abroad and they're connected too and so I really thought what you did was fantastic um you know I look forward to to uh anything you you do in the future please stay in touch uh I, I'd offered to to write a letter of record something for you but I don't think you want that so that would that would work against you so you know
0: I'm That's very happy. I you know, part of the uh, part of the issue is I'm not like looking for a promotion, <laughs> like, yeah, a different institution like I'm uh, like happy. It's, it's funny like when I, I was uh... right what I want, I'm not tr- worried about who I
1: you know, alienate <laughs> many years ago, one of these right wing nut jobs wrote a thing about lefty things. and it was it was like the greatest moment of our life because they said something like Gabriel Coco Coco, Williammond mm-hmm. Williams, Bruce Cummings, and Bob Bazanko. <laughs> like. Oh hell yeah. Hey, like, nice. Dude, I'll take it anytime. Well like, or, done. You
0: know, yeah, that's good.
1: The, the, the Chomsky Bazango piece like, yeah, fine, man, dude. That's like, you know, I take one, you know, for all the shit the establishment gives me, you know, one one connection that Chomsky, you know, overdoes it. So and no, I really I, I and I mean this as a compliment because I think a lot of a lot of younger scholars, and I don't stay up to date the way I should, but a lot of younger scholars aren't doing the kind of history that like I I was raised on and I sound like a cranky old get off my lawn guy there. But when I read your stuff, when I listened to you, it really does remind me of that amazing body of work from Coco and Williams and Lefebvre and Bart Bernstein and Lloyd Gardner and Sklar and just all of them, you know, uh, and and that meant so much to me and it still does intellectually. I still, you know, I do read, I am, I'm aware of the new stuff. I still don't think they're they've been talked i don't think they've been debunked i still think i think they're more relevant than ever look at the world today and so what you're doing is is just it's great history and it's really important and i i really uh really appreciated it um are you working on like a kind of a, a sequel to this now iraq going forward or
0: yeah i have some sort of rough sketches of like how yeah. i would do a volume two maybe yeah. counting from mid 70s to uh
1: yeah
0: i mean 70s to up to the 2003 war um, I've kind of got something, you kind of like this, you know, all I have is a title, but it's a, called the Anti-Imperial Senate, right? Play on Star Wars, about how it was that like all of these places like Alaska and Arkansas, all, you know, Fulbright's not so great, but uh, Idaho, um, you know, these places that produced these really critical, Frank Church and, and uh, yeah. Abu Rizik uh, from South Dakota, yeah. and how like there was this really sort of progressive prairie populist tradition of the 70s that uncovered, you um, Uncover, you know, the church committee stuff, sure, all that yeah. stuff, and like I kind of wanted to do an investigation of like what was it about that particular moment that allowed yeah. those figures to be in such a moment of in such a position of uh, um, such high importance.
1: Well, a lot of those places had folks who were like on the Nye committee, who were isolationists. Mm-hmm. So there used to be that tradition. Even now, I think. It's weird because even there's this like kind of this underpinning of Trump was kind of a, a, an anti-interventionist. You know, I mean, he, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, he didn't necessarily do it, but I mean, clearly, I think Clinton would have been even more. And you know, look at what Biden and Pelosi that are was doing now. Deal, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think there is, and I think like Trump. Anyway, we could have a whole discussion about him, but there are parts of that. There's an anti-elitism there, I think, among Trump people, and I think to some degree, like if you look in 2016, places that were most affected. You know who lost people in the iraq war you know who were most affected actually voted for trump yeah so it's 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 easy to say they're a bunch of fascists they're a bunch of racists and you know it's it's hard to say they're not you know there are plenty of more but there's more to it than that and i mm-hmm. think there's an anti-interventionist element i mean you know the whole kind of russia 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 thing got totally out of control right with the democrats they thought that was you know but i mean there, there was a part of trump that like is against interventions now, I don't know if he's pro-Russia or not, but there's there are people who wanna like America First has lost, you know, you can't really talk about that anymore. But I think like if you're in Youngstown, you know, I'm 10 minutes away from Youngstown right now. I mean, people there don't give a shit about your pronouns. I'll get in trouble for saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they they, you know, you want to sit down with them and they want to know like how come the fucking jobs are left, why did the mill shut down? Mm-hmm. Uh how come these San Francisco and Manhattan elitists are telling me what to do. Uh, They're talking about toxic masculinity and white privilege, and I don't have that. So I think there's something to that anti-interventionism too. I mean, a lot of people like, why should I send my kid to Ukraine or to Taiwan or wherever, you know?
0: Actually, you know, let me rephrase that. It's not so much where they came from, it's what happened to them. What I want to look at is the way the Iranian revolution drove out these people right and yeah. made it impossible to articulate a certain critique or, yeah. or I want to look at the way what I really want to look at is how do they navigate the military industrial complex because you have someone like, you know, uh, Frank Church who's showing the way that you know Lockheed's bribing and, yeah. you know, like, I want to look at the way that um, how did they navigate because you don't get to be in the Senate. It's a corrupt imperial. That's the irony of what I'm going at is that my, yeah. my take is that the Senate is inherently anti democratic anti majoritarian that there is no possibility of a progressive critique within the hallowed halls of the U.S. Senate. And so I want to show how that works, that you can take the most progressive person you can imagine, someone like Frank Church, and show the way the military industrial complex could just cut him down sure. or abhorizic or something, right? So I want to I want to look at how that tradition was eclipsed. And I think that I haven't done very much research on this, but I think that the seeds of the destruction can be found in the way that the Senate serves the interests of imperial power, right? And so the idea oh, sure. of an anti-imperial Senate is a contradiction in terms. It can't even exist. Right. And and so I I want to look at the what I really want to do is look at the influence of the military-industrial complex. And I'm trying to find a way in. And I think it's by looking at the way that people like Church and Aberzic um well, try to navigate that.
1: That's awesome because even the left doesn't do much on things like the military-industrial or arm sales. Like mm-hmm. you know, like Bill Hartung, who works with the great stuff on arms sales, and there are a few people who do, but there's very little history on it. I remember one day I started looking, at it. There's, there's not much on it. And the military industrial complex, I mean, I talk about that, and like I'm considered, you know, it's called conspiracy theory or NSC mm-hmm. 68. Like, there's a couple great books on NSC 68, but that's about it, you know. Yeah. So,
0: there's a new one out there by uh, I think his name is Jonathan NG, N- N- and um, yeah. uh, it's a, it's a, he's uh, the dissertation's out, but there's a new diplomatic history about, um, the military industrial complex is the, I think it's called the export of imperialism. Oh, oh cool. And uh, it's really well done. It's, yeah. And I have dissertations floating around. He, he, uh, well, I look, um, look for it. Well, yeah, you know, it looks like, like the a, the, um, the, um,
1: the arms uh, manufacturers had a consortium put together in the early nineties to expand NATO, you know, mm-hmm. the expansion of NATO was was paid and funded by, by the arms makers, you know, it had nothing to do with security, you know, or anything like that. So anyway, yeah, that's we're, where the, we're That's where
0: on. the bodies are buried
1: yeah uh brandon wolf honeycutt this has been fantastic i really enjoyed it this is kind of you know right up my alley and uh i love talking to you it's a great book the paranoid style and american diplomacy go out and buy buy it and if you teach you should assign it and make sure you get new ones not used copies so the he gets you get a, what like a buck from each one rather than the bookstore you know uh <laughs> and not uh, getting rich no i know none of us do uh uh, but this is the Green and Red podcast. Um, Scott will be back soon, but I'm Bob Bazenko. And uh, as always, uh, check out the show notes and uh, follow us. Uh, subscribe on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform. Share this, please. Uh, rate and review. And uh, if you want to donate money, you can do that. We're on Patreon and we have support we have a little bit of overhead not a lot uh and um we don't get uh, like two million bucks a year like Chapo, and we don't have media connections like the the brooklyn lefties so we're scrappy independent and we have great guests on though we have the best guests without a doubt so uh thank all of you again and thank you brandon and uh we will uh be back soon take care all.